Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And if you're joining us online, good morning to you too. We are in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 13. We will consider verses 15 through 23, but I will start at verse 14. And so if you have your Bibles open, the gospel according to Mark, chapter 13, please stand as we read the word of God. Beginning in verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulations, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake... Whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or Look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. Please be seated. Escaping Israel is the title of this morning's consideration. And for those of you who may have missed last week's session, Jesus had told them in answer to their question, when will the destruction of the temple be in the last days? When are they coming? And he highlighted for them in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not be. And he's referencing the temple of the Jews, which at that time, he said, is going to be destroyed. And we know by the context of everything, it's going to be rebuilt. The the Jews will rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. It will be the third Jewish temple, the first being that of Solomon, and then Zerubbabel, which Herod expanded significantly. That one was destroyed too. And uh, the third one will have to be built. Uh, There is a lot of evidence that uh, the original, the traditional location of that third temple is um, going to be in a different place where a lot of people expect it to be. But there's room for a lot of discussion on that. But I want to now come back to what happens after that temple is defiled by Antichrist. Then what? And this is what our consideration this morning is about. And I want to introduce or talk about Bible prophecy and what it has to do with how we approach this current culture we live in, and then we'll get to the verses which are largely self-explanatory. At least they are to me now, but they weren't when I was first coming across them as a new believer. But Bible prophecy is a massive subject. It it is just huge. It's big. And many are intimidated by it. Many Christians don't want to touch it because there's so much uh, cross-referencing, studying, and digging into the culture. uh, Just a lot. And you shouldn't be intimidated by that, at least not to the point to shy away. You can be intimidated or frightened by it a little bit, but that should spur you on. There are three quotes that I have found useful from, far as I know, an unbeliever that uh, really capture the spirit of prophecy in, in a surprising way. And I have quoted from this person before, Gutson Borglum. He is the sculptor of Mount Rushmore. That was his project. He is the architect, the sculptor. He, he drove it along. And uh, he says this, again, applicable to Bible prophecy and its magnitude. Borglum says, Sheer mass is emotional. 
And that is so true. You see something that is just enormous in its category, and you're like, wow, look at that. It is emotional. I once saw a pachyderm big as an elephant. <laughs> and it was emotional. Uh, you can see an insect that's large for insects. Look at that ant. This thing is huge. So such is Bible prophecy, such is human nature. You come to Bible prophecy in the book of Revelation, just for an example, and you go, wow, there's so much here. Mount Rushmore is loud, said Borglum, demanding attention. Isn't that true with Bible prophecy? It is loud. When you hear just a few prophecies that of, of the, what's coming in the end times, you remember them. You might not be memorize them, but when you hear them again, you say, I heard that before, I remember that. And then finally, the third quote of Gutzun is, The faces are in the mountain. All I have to do is bring them out. Well, the future is in Bible prophecy, and God brings it out through his prophets and through the Holy Spirit. And he promises blessings for those students of the word, students of end-time prophecy, particularly the book of Revelation, because you can't study the book of Revelation without a foundation in all of the other scriptures. You, I mean, you can, but you won't get from it any of its profound teachings and blessings that are available, or at least you will reduce them. But knowing Scripture before Revelation, by the time you get to it, is very beneficial because of its sheer magnitude. The grandeur of the future told and controlled by God. That is significant. That's why, we, I, why I get blessed when I read the Revelation God is telling me what's going to happen, and I know he controls it, and that blesses me. And I'm seeing it carried out as almost as though, in many places, as though it's already happened. Because of faith. And that's what it does. It builds up our faith to face life more boldly and to do something with it. What good is courage in Christ if you don't do anything with it? That's the whole parable of... No one lights a lamp and sticks it under a, a bushel and, well, not expecting that lamp to still shine. So the time comes when God tells his people whom he brought into the promised land to escape it. It seems counterintuitive. I mean, he, he's worked so hard over history, at least from our perspective. Of course, God doesn't break a sweat, but just applying our characteristics to him to, to get it for a moment. Uh, he, God worked so hard to get the Jews into the promised land more than once. And yet, in verse 14, Jesus says, And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. God brought Israel in three times. There will be a fourth time. The first time, and I'll round off these numbers, about 1,500 years before the birth of Christ, almost 4,000 years ago. God brought them out, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and into the promised land. And, of course, they endeared themselves to fake ideas about God, and as punishment, God moved them out of that land, and he did it in stages. And they end up in Babylon, which becomes Persia. And the Persian king, Cyrus, whom Isaiah prophesied by name a hundred years before he was even born brings them back into the, or at least gives the edict to send them back to the promised land. Now, this was about 540 years before Christ was born. So we have two instances of Christ, who is God the Son, bringing the people, the chosen people from which Messiah would come, into the promised land. Of course, by the time they get back in this land again, they reject their Messiah. They revolt against Rome more than once. Uh, by the third time that they revolt against Rome, the Romans kicked them out of Jerusalem and out of the Promised Land, and out they stayed for almost 2,000 years. And we read in Isaiah 43, well, before I get to that, 
God brings them back into their land after that. After the Romans put them out. So the, the temple is up. The second Jewish temple is up. And uh, the Romans destroy it because of the Jewish revolt. The Jews revolt again. The Romans put that down. The Jews revolt again. The Romans then send them out of the promised land. They stay out of the promised land until God brings them back in 1948. Gives them control of the land again. And then the Jews begin bringing Jews from all over the world back into the promised land. Especially when the Soviet Union collapsed. Jews were given, if you were a Jew and you could prove you were a Jew, you were, you were free to come back to the promised land. And they have been coming in hordes. I remember on our tour, our tour guide was from New Jersey. But he lived in, uh, as a total citizen in Israel now. He and his family wanted to live in the promised land. He, he learned to speak the, the Jewish language, the Hebrew, and, and, and there they are. Isaiah 43, verse 6, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Well, that ends of the earth part didn't happen when Cyrus sent them back from Persia. They were coming back from the Persian Empire, but not from the ends of the earth. That happened in 1948, and it happened in phases, but in parts. And don't get too caught up in those details. We're giving you an overview. Isaiah 11 he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So we are living in our lifetimes. We are watching these two prophecies of Isaiah be fulfilled. And the Jews, again, are very serious about it. Well, they're going to get out of that land again. And that's what I just read from verse 14. Those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And then he'll bring them back again once he returns. But we're not going to turn our attention to that yet. That comes later in Matthew 13. Before the final return, the day is coming when the Jewish people must escape the promised land if they're going to survive as individuals. Because the race will survive in spite of all of the efforts of Antichrist and his minion to wipe them off the face of the earth. With so many prophecies in the Bible, not only about the end times, but just about the nations. You know, you, do, you read through Isaiah, for example, and you get to the prophecies on Moab and Ammon. And you say, what is this boring reading? But God is saying, these are prophecies that I have fulfilled. Not in your lifetime, before your lifetime. But I've got many to be fulfilled in your lifetime and possibly after. This should excite us because with so many of them fulfilled, it would be unwise not to trust the remaining prophecies in detail. And what we don't understand, we accept by faith because we know better. God blesses prophetic study, as I mentioned, because it's big and it's big on purpose. Revelation chapter 1, in the beginning of the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus told John, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Demonstrated this verse when he says, Blessed are those who read and hear. This is demonstrated by all the Christians who have expanded their knowledge of end times prophecy. They know they're, they're blessed by it. And the proof of that is they don't want to go backwards. Which if you said, well, do you have an end time understanding? He said, I do. Would you like to lose it? Absolutely not. Why not? Because it's a blessing. As promised by the Lord. And so there is great purpose in a basic end time study. Uh, and, and it... If you don't have one, get one, and it will enhance your ability to preach because there are those that think God can go out of style, that the culture has somehow passed him. Well, they do it in different ways, denying he even exists and stuff like that. But God is never out of style. His hands are on everything even after the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And the prophecies are telling us God is totally in control. His hands are on this. He has got it. The final pieces of end time prophecy 
are rapidly filling. Because there have been for years parts of prophecy. For instance, when we talk about the Jews, uh, Jesus saying, flee the promised land. Well, there's a long period of history, almost 2,000 years, where they weren't in the promised land. But that's been now fulfilled. And there are other things that we're just checking off the boxes. And rapidly now in this age of technology, sin levels are too high to sustain. Man has learned how to sin so profoundly now that it cannot be sustained. This happened when God sent the flood during the days of Noah. Man was so wicked, he had become so bad with his you know, power brokers enslaving people that God said, this has got to stop or else they won't make it. We see it in a microcosm in Sodom and Gomorrah also. But anyway, the Genesis 6 cartel ravaging the human race it was global because everybody was sort of centered in one place. They spoke one language, and it was violent, and it was bad. I mean, God couldn't fix it, so he had to wash it away, preserving Noah and his wife and his children. The culture of Sodom and Gomorrah gave nothing to humanity, produced nothing worth preserving. In fact, you can't even find for sure where it was. That's how thoroughly they've been washed away or burned away, you might say. They were intolerant. They were militant in their lifestyle. They were totally perverted, twisted to the point of you say, what? Which is now becoming, or attempts, of course, to reverse it all, to make decency vile and vile things decent come to that just a little bit in a moment. We're living through this. But Sodom and Gomorrah, to God, it was not sustainable. God said, history going forward is better off without that city and the behavior that was in it, in spite of Abraham's pleading with God to spare the city. God says, Abraham, I have to overrule you here because this kind of wickedness must be arrested Because if it is not arrested, not stopped, arrested. If it is not, it will spread to the point where humanity will not be able to sustain themselves. The wickedness goes that deep. The sin was so brazen, the people were so intractable, that nothing short of divine judgment could halt the spread. And that is what happened. Today now, we've we've talked about Genesis 6 which led to the flood of Noah. We talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, which led to its being wiped off the first face of the earth. Again, that lifestyle had nothing to give humanity except short, twisted pleasures. And you say that today, uh, and you risk being persecuted in a, a very serious way. But the culture today is globally, not every single person, but globally, being, becoming more and more Satan-friendly and Christ-intolerant. And we see it happening. And again, it's not sustainable. Because with this rejection of Christ comes immorality. And immorality is harmful to humans. And immorality is defined by God, not by humanists, secular humanists. And so we have the LGBT recruiters. Not enough that they live this lifestyle. They're going to get you. And you young adults, you are the most, or you young Christians, you are so susceptible to this move. Satan hates your gut so much. He hates you just as much as he hates me. And he's not going to come and stand in your face and say, I hate you. What he's going to do to take you out is to get you to move away from Christ. That's all he has to do to make his hatred work against you. To damn your soul. And now he has got people and their sexual preferences out trying to recruit people to join them in their stampede towards destruction. It's heartbreaking. We don't hate them for this. We see beyond the people. We see what Satan is doing, but we also see that the people are serious opponents and very dangerous. The transgender Frankensteins, that's what they are, Frankensteins. 
The whole thing of Frankenstein was to create something from the dead that ended up being a monster. That ultimately doesn't survive. Unfortunately, it transfers in from, from fantasy into reality. They give, again, nothing to mankind except malfunction. And if you're ignorant and if you're gullible, they're going to get you. If you find that the world is more fun in Christ to the point where you begin to leave Christ, they've got you. And you'll have no one to blame but yourself. As much as you want to blame your pastor, your parents, your church, or whatever else, it will be you. And one of the awful things about hell is you will, whoever is in hell will be there by their own choosing and it will be a lonely place in spite of its multitudes. Sin remains sin no matter how popular any culture wants to make sin. See, this has to do with the end times. It has to do with biblical prophecy. It has to do with understanding how am I going to face these things? How am I going to reach people with the truth? Well, the prophecy is truth. And the truth is convicting and convincing. Well, it's first convincing, then it's conv Well, maybe... Other All right, sorry about that. <laughs> Nowadays, we are stuck. Instead of gibors and giants, giant gibors, giant power brokers and their cartel, we have these tech monsters who suppose themselves to be godlike, but really they're devils. Not because of what they uh, are have created with technology, but what they are creating because of the technology. The culture that produces great characters is being abolished. Now this culture will create the Antichrist. It is moving all in that direction, and it's ramping up faster. How much of human history lived at the speed of a horse that had its light from oil, Lanterns and uh, uh, how much of history was without what we call modern technology? Most of it. It wasn't until you know the last three hundred years or so before man beginning to find out that you know he can get more energy from steam and then harnessed electricity and and now look what's happening. It's no surprise that God withheld technology from humanity. Because we are seeing what they do. And what happens when I say this? What happens when I say we are in a culture that cannot produce great characters, but can produce the Antichrist? What happens then? They scoff. They scoff at that. Yeah, right. Because technology offers us some very wonderful benefits it does not mean, and there's nothing wrong with technology in itself, of course. It's what you do with it. Second Peter chapter 3, knowing this first. You see that emphasis? We miss that, do we not, when we read Second Peter. When he says scoffers will come, we missed it. He said first. These are the unbelievers that will recruit you to their side. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. Well, just ask yourself. That's a prophetic statement that Peter is making about the end times. Are they walking according to their own lusts? Of course. Whatever passions they may have. See? That is end time prophecy. And it is helpful to us. But it is damning to those against Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and Paul, who had to, you know, decadent Corinth, uh, is just such an awful place. When, when Paul writes to the Romans that first chapter, he's living in Corinth. And so all of that activity that he is dragging into the light is happening outside of his window. I like to think, you know, maybe he just came back from the marketplace and he saw the debauchery. And now he's, he's writing to the Romans and he's saying, all, you know, what these people are doing here in Corinth, they're doing in Rome and everywhere else. And so he writes this to the Corinthians later. He says, to the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. You see, that one is the one that scoffs at Christ, that rejects him. 
you to them, you reek of death. That be your judgment because you're saying you're going to go to hell if you don't accept Christ. That hell is death. Whether they believe it or not, that is the fragrance that they're picking up. And that is what they are rebelling against, part of it. Paul continues, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. Other Christians are blessed by you when you share. Yeah, I'm a Christian too. I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is such a bouquet of promise and of life. So Paul was writing to the Corinthians. He said, listen, this is how it is. There are those that hate Christ. To them, it's the message of death. There are those that love Christ. To them, it's the message of life. And these are the days we've been living in from the beginning. So that way with Cain and Abel, it goes all the way back. Recovery of this collapsing. Now listen to this. Recovery of this collapsing culture is not the primary calling of the saints. It is not our first calling to try to rescue America. I'm not saying we should not try, make efforts. It's not primary. What is primary? It's the recovery of lost souls. That's what our primary mission is. And it's a large distance between the two. It's not a close second. This is seen... And what happens during the Great Tribulation? The two witnesses that are dispatched from God, the 144,000 saints, are not trying to recover the planet. They're trying to save souls. They're preaching the gospel under fire. And we do well to learn these lessons from them. And this comes from the study of end-time prophecy. Preaching Jesus in a material or a materialistic world, a world rich with material things, is like sowing seed where the root structures are very dense. And that means getting people saved through the truth is going to meet strong resistance. Luke's gospel, Jesus said in chapter 8, Now the ones, seeds that is, that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with the cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. If you are a believer of Jesus Christ and God blesses you with wealth, it is your responsibility to say, Lord, what would you like me to do with your money? And you either can trust God to do that or not. That does not mean God's going to say, I want you to give it all away and you will have none and I can't use you anymore, but I've got all your cash. It's kind of reverse prosperity teaching. <laughs> God takes your money because God wants to be rich. That's not how it works. God is... Very much. You just can't do things in a society, in a, in a civilization. We still have some civilization. It's going to go away in the Great Tribulation. But we still have some of it. And it's very difficult to do much for Christ without cash. That is just a fact. You don't have to like it. It's just fact. You say, well, I'm going to travel to you know, California and preach over there. And you live on the East Coast. How are you going to get there? How are you going to eat? Uh, you, you, cash helps. But to be able to be balanced, to where it does not morph into greed or anything else. Anyway, sin does not, be, sin does not stop being sin, as I mentioned. It does not uh, cease to be sin because it is everywhere embraced. Uh, that only makes it pandemic. When sin is embraced everywhere, you just have it spread everywhere. It doesn't mean, okay, it's acceptable because everybody's doing it. What a dingbat. <laughs> approach to life. Everybody's doing it. Well, that's, it's true with some things, for instance, breathing. Um, you know, everybody's doing it. I want to do it too. But even that has its boundaries. If culture dictates what is right and wrong, what is moral, what is immoral, who needs God? Well, we're seeing them do that. We're watching this happen every day of our lives now. Well, they have launched, they have declared war on everything that is righteous. And it is intentional. It is well planned out and it is becoming more and more effective. Parents wondering, how am I going to shield my kids from these monsters? And the kids coming, they're not monsters. Well, yeah, they are. You get close enough to them and you can, anyway... 
I don't know, are you, are you teens getting this? Have you gotten it already? Do you need a refresher course? What part of this is difficult to understand? What you have to fight out with in your own heart is who's going to win, the fun of the world or the truth of God. Fun will always outfun Christianity. It will always do this with great destruction. I mean, even in ancient, you know, the ancient world, the Romans and the Greeks, the adults had to, you know, they, you had the Stoics and the Epicureans. You have some, I'm just going to live life and love everything in it. And you have the Stoics, you know, well, nothing is good that is fun. I mean, and it, it just the craziness of it all. You are expected to be smarter than those duped by Satan, especially if you go to a good church. If you go to a good church, you, there's even a bigger target on you. Why does Satan have to fuss with people that go to a church and never hear the word of God? He's after the ones that are hearing the word of God. I'm so sick of it, I, I can't tell you. But God tells me, hey, you don't have a right to be sick of it. Get back in there. Christ, who loves you, will fight for you if you want. Now we turn our attention briefly to these domino churches that are falling into heresy like dominoes because the Internet is just is, is hauling the chili for them. All of the heresies are now just instant. You don't have to go to the library and read a book. You can see a two-minute video on something that is full of baloney. Heresy does not become acceptable to God simply because it has been embraced by churches that use his name. It's like, oh, the church believes in that stupid stuff? Okay, God must believe. No, it doesn't work. Not like that. When churches embrace heresy, it becomes apostasy. And apostasy is the falling away. And it is as though they never were worse than not hearing the gospel, but hearing it, having it, then rejecting it. What hope remains? God's word does not cave in to those in conflict with its demands. If you say, I don't like what God is saying, he's not going to change it. But you can change. And you can join it. And you can then become like all the other believers who are trying to serve the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You can then say, I get it now. And this is much better. This is much better than kicking against the goads as Paul the Apostle did when he persecuted the church. He really thought he was right. He could taste the hatred. The Bible says Paul, or Saul at that time, uh, still breathing Threats of violence wreaked havoc on the church. He hated Christians so much. Why? Why did Paul hate them on a whole new level than when he first came in touch with Christians? Because of one man, Stephen. Stephen got up in Paul's face with a truth that he was not ready to take. And Paul never forgot it. And when he got saved, he used it. And he would spend his life preaching what Stephen preached, because now it was what Paul believed too. And this culture is fighting to make God's morals obsolete, obsolete, no longer, you know, just defunct, out of style, to Satan's delight. Let's understand, Satan hates the people that hate Christ. Don't think that because people hate Christ that Satan loves them. He loves using them. He hates all mankind. And so here's this culture that we're in, trying to reverse everything. Isaiah called it 700 years, over 700 years before Christ came. Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. They were doing it in his day. Isaiah would come along and say, this is the Lord according to the law of Moses. Don't do this, don't do that. It's bad for everybody. And they would switch it around. No, this is actually good for each other. Stealing is good. If it helps, helps who? Not the one stolen from it. It doesn't help them. They're insistent that judgment is untrue, seals their doom. And that's what they, they think, that I don't believe it. It's not true. Okay, you're fine then. There's too much evidence. There's too much scriptural prophecy. And knowing it and being able to draw it out. I have noticed when I've used prophecy on some unbelievers who are adamant about their unbelief, they don't want to hear it. They want to shut me down on the prophecy. We, I could talk about Christ and his cross. I could talk about sin. But when I start talking about the facts of prophecy, 
No, they don't want to hear that. Why? Because they can't dispute it. When you talk about, look, the Bible called the cashless society long before there were credit cards, long before there were bitcoins, long before these things. They said, this is what's going to happen. He said, the day is going to come when you can't buy or sell without being plugged into the government. Barter systems will be done. The Bible called. And there's just many other such things. John's Gospel. For those they are, that are trying to make sin honorable, they're even trying to make it honorable to God by taking their perversity into churches and flaunting it. You can go to a church and you can have someone that is totally steeped in perversity and everybody knows it and they're calling this wonderful. John 15, chapter 18. Oh, sorry, that doesn't make any sense. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you because of that aroma, that fragrance that's coming off the believer. And simply for not agreeing with a Lucifer-bloated society. That's why you'll be hated. Because you disagree. Just go to the office place, stand around the cooler and say, now I think that's sick. And watch what happens to you. Demonically stuff. We have far gras humans. You know, they've taken, they've taken the, the, you know, they take the goose or the duck and they force feed it until it, liver becomes bloated and, and then they butcher it after they of course kill it and serve the liver foie gras what is that from it's from a, a goose or a, a duck that we force fed that's what Satan and Antichrist are trying to do to us now so Jesus warns he says these are climactic times when you see that temple built and you see it defiled you understand that the end is coming. They're going to have 1,260 days of persecution from that point forward. And so, Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, Jesus said, And you will be hated for my name's sake. He's not talking just to the Jew. The Jews are hated because they're Jews. We know Satan hates them because the Jews are the people chosen by God to produce Messiah and many other promises surrounding that event. But the Christians will be hated the believers will be hated. Verse 13 now, we come to our text this morning. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. Now, their rooftops in ancient Israel, at the time Jesus preached, served as our porches, our patios, our backyard decks. That's where people went to hang out. And he is, he is saying... Uh, if, if you're on, out on the patio and you're listening to the radio, well, I don't know if anybody has a radio anymore, you're listening to your smart device and you get the headline, anti, I mean, this, you know, the Antichrist, we won't know his name, they'll know it. We won't be here for that. When they say so-and-so has defiled the Jewish temple, when you hear that on the radio, don't go back in the house to get something, no matter what it is. Uh, people, I mean, you know, you have to use your, you, you catch the urgency here. But you are to instantly realize that Antichrist is a monster. He's not a friend of Israel. And this, this hatred is unprecedented for the Jews. And with this unprecedented hatred and unprecedented resources, it will be extreme. The extermination, uh, verse 20, we'll come back to that later. So as the news breaks of this abomination, escape before the checkpoints are in place. Don't hesitate. Flee. Delay. In Pompeii. You know, Pompeii close to uh, Naples, Mount Vesuvius. Uh, centuries ago, there was a very large volcano there that erupted and wiped out the city of Pompeii. Other places, too. I mean, boats were coming to their help. <laughs> Many of them got wiped out also. But anyway, archaeologists have found... Beneath a skeleton that perished in Pompeii, uh, the remains of a leather pouch with 20 coins of silver in it and a key, which was believed to be his house key. The point is, he took the key, he went back in the house, he got his silver, and he never made it out. So... That is just a natural lesson from a natural disaster, but this is a spiritual lesson from an omnipotent God. 
And he says, don't go back. As soon as you hear the news, you have no time. Global persecution of the Christian and the Jew, of the non-Jewish Christian, will be everywhere. You know, the ethnic Jew cannot, he won't be able to opt out of his ethnicity. But people can opt out of Christianity. The Gentiles can say, okay, I'm not going to follow Christ. And they will, of course, perish because of that. But the Jews are stuck. They cannot say, okay, I'm not a Jew. The DNA research is going to be thorough there. This is why you, you have the, the, the 12,000 from each tribe. They're going to be able to identify without any doubt. Hey, you're a Jew. They didn't do that now. Verse 16. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So if you're at work and you hear on the radio, he's just done this, you don't go back home. This is radical stuff. This is the time of Jacob's trouble, as Jeremiah prophesied. I'll read that verse later. But how will they know where to go? Okay, flee. Flee where? Well, some of it will be process of elimination. At this point, smartphones will be very beneficial. They'll be talking with you, those roads are closed, but here's one that's open. And likely, the only roads going to be open will be to Jordan. I don't think Egypt's going to play along. I don't think they'll make it there. Anyway, and there's some precedence for this. His troops will seal off exit routes of the city because he's been ready for this. Uh, House-to-house dragnets rounding up Jews, as they did with the Nazis. Whether the Jew is compliant or non-compliant, they will die if caught. Uh, This global surrender is what is going to take place. Antichrist, he's going to control the world. I believe, again, for those of you who are familiar with Ezekiel 38, I believe that section of Scripture takes place before. That's what gets Antichrist into power. That allows him to be able to make a covenant with the Jews. That's why the armies are put in uh, around Jerusalem. And he has control. And the Gentiles will be receiving his mark with allegiance. Revelation 13, 17, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. Pause here for a minute. This was not possible without the technology we have now. In, in John's day, what was he thinking? Is this going to be a tattoo? Uh, what, what, how, how's that going to work? Now we have full knowledge of how this is going to work. Barcodes were just the beginning of it coming into, you know, view. And it's being greatly developed even now. There are already chip implants that can read data. Uh, The convenience of technology. You won't have to carry a wallet. One reason why I like sports coats is I can put my wallet in one pocket, my phone in another pocket, and ammunition in this pocket, and, uh, you know, I'm just ready. So continues and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name you're going to have to be tied into to this monster what if during this recent mask mandate which was for the first time i don't know that there's ever been another time in human history where globally everyone fell under the same mandate I don't mean back in Shinar, you know, before the flood, where everybody was living in one city. I mean the world. And we watched this happen. Now, this does not mean that mask wearing is the mark. What it, what it does most certainly does mean is that we now live in a time where what rulers could, what Alexander the Great could not do, what Genghis Khan could not do, what Napoleon could not do, and a host of others who wanted to conquer the planet now it can be done. Now you can put everybody under one mandate. And that's what's going to happen with the chip. You will be put under a mandate. We were talking about a, worrying about a vaccine being mandated. What happens when this becomes mandated? It's, a, it's almost a death sentence. To do what government demands. It's not an anti-government statement. I'm just telling you what is going to happen because the scripture says it. And those who willingly receive this mark, they will be happy and gay. And I'm, I don't mean the word gay in its corrupted sense. 
I mean it the way it meant before the 1970s. <laughs> before the Rotten Rock Hudsons came along and began to come out of the closet, and, and which was the beginning of sorrows in a lesser way. But anyway, those who willingly receive this mark are doomed. They're sealing their own faith, uh, fate. God will not be able to save them because he's already said, verse, uh, Revelation 14, verse 9, then a third of the angel... Uh, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out, now listen to this, in full strength. That is without the grace. He continues, Into the cup of his indignation he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Revelation 19.20, Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. See the willfulness, the worshipping of the image. They, they, They followed the lie. They are now irretrievable. You say, how do you know they followed the lie? 2 Thessalonians 2.10, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And that is in the context of Antichrist and what he is doing. Verse 17, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Another burden, advanced pregnancy, caring for little children. Again, well, I told you I'd read Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Jeremiah says, alas, for that day is great. Remember the massiveness of end times. So that none is like it, as Jesus said, not since creation. And it is a time of Jacob's trouble. The Jews are singled out for extermination. They can't hide. They cannot disown their ethnicity, regardless of what they do with their religion. They are Jews nonetheless, and that's all they have to be. And then Jeremiah says... uh, And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. A third of the Jewish population. Uh, That's not little. Uh, Of of how many are slaughtered. Two-thirds wiped out. This is what's coming to mankind. In verse 18, and pray that your flight may not be in winter. Another obstacle of bad weather. And so he urges the people to pray that there will be no part of this. Uh, while in Jerusalem, especially, and while Jerusalem writhes in pain, the rest of the world will be going to games wherever there's not wiped out from other natural destructions. Uh, some people will be going on with business as usual. Verse 19, for in those days there will be tribulation such as not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Well, five or six evolutionists would just pass out hearing that, that God created. I heard an evolutionist, several of them, recently. I've, I've been on this thing watching, uh, you know, things on bugs and animals. Uh, and I've been, several of these evolutionists, I know I'm getting a little excited, but I'm running out of time. So they say, Evolution has thought of. What? Uh, you just personified it. You just admitted it's a person. And, and not some random selection stuff. Uh, and their own hypocrisy. They don't see it. But we see it anyway. And, and believe me. Or believe the scientists who lie. And scientists lie a lot. For instance, icebergs melting. Ooh, we're going to get flooded. You can just prove this with a glass of ice water. Because you put ice in ice water, and when the ice melts, you don't have more water. (laughs) You have less. And so when icebergs melt, we're going to have less water. What are you talking about? Okay. It's right. You do do it at home. All of a sudden, that's not science, right? Science is true science is a study of creation with honesty. Anyway, uh, thank you very much. Uh, save it to the end. Autographs at the end of the service. All right, I've got to finish this up because you people have places to go. And <laughs> where was? We're in those days, verse 19. It is self-explanatory. Uh, through the other prophets, we know that there's going to be 1,260 days from that point forward, from the time 
that Antichrist defiles the temple to the return of Christ. That's three and a half years. Uh, there are more days tacked on because there are judgments and there are cleanup operations. There are actually a few years of, of cleaning up battlefield uh, debris and, and toxins. Uh, there will be those fooled by signs and wonders because they did not love the truth. Verse, thir- verse 20 and unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Man would have been wiped off the face of the earth. God's wrath poured out in the great tribulation. It's for their abominations. Zechariah 14.4 And in that day his feet will stand on, Mount, on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. That's his return. The Battle of Armageddon will be happening north of Jerusalem. And that, they'll be taking, dealt with too. While he puts his feet on the ground there at the Mount of Olives from where he ascended to heaven. The context of verse 20 is clearly Jew, uh, the Jews in use of the word elect. In John's second letter, when he uses the phrase elect, the context is clear. It is the church which is made up of Jew and Gentile. Uh, here, it is uh, the Jewish people, as according to Isaiah 65, verses 8 and 9. Almost finished, without rushing. Verse 21, Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. A lot of Jewish religious activity going on. They're going to be desperate for their deliverer. And uh, the Jewish people, to the, at this time in history are so desperate for peace that they're willing to appease and compromise and bend over backwards where they really should not be doing this. And uh, this is going to work against them. They are desperate for peace to a fault, and this is why the covenant with Antichrist will take off. Daniel chapter 9. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That's a seven-year uh, seven period. But in the middle of the week, that's a three-and-a-half-year period, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering, the abomination of desolation Jesus spoke about, quoting this section of Scripture. And on the wing of abominations, right on the tip of those abominations, shall be one who makes desolate. That is the vile king, uh, the son of perdition, the beast, it continues, even until the consummation, that is Christ returning, as I just read from uh, Zechariah, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. And that is the, the, such as the world has never seen. Verse 22, for false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, the elect. And this is primarily Israel. Uh, the converts, Gentile converts, aren't going to be fooled. They're going to be so willing to believe that they'll die believing. That, that's how solid their conversions are going to be. And we fret over, you know, things, you know, gas prices going up, which is understandable to a point, but we've got to keep our perspective anyway. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. He's going to do some impressive things. And only truth will beat it. Truth of what? Righteousness. Because he's going to be a dirty dude. He is not going to be, you know, boy, I sure hope my daughter would marry somebody like him. He is not going to be that guy. Uh, he's the reason why dads own guns. Well, dads with daughters, I should say. Well, an added reason. There are other reasons. And they're good reasons. Anyway, verse 23. I mean, who doesn't like the smell of gunpowder when you're causing it? <laughs> but take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. Following the Lord's instructions. Following these instructions. First century Christians, when the temple of the Jews was still up, before the Romans, when the Romans started surrounding Jerusalem, when the stuff was beginning to happen, there were Christian Jews in Jerusalem. You know, James was the leader of that church. They packed up and they moved to Jordan, a city called Pella. This is historical. You can look it up. Because they believed what Jesus said. 
When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee to the mountains. And they did. And because they did, when the Romans finally did wipe out, nearly wipe out the Jews in Jerusalem, the, the famine, the starvation, the civil infighting, the hell on earth that the Jews went through in the city, they escaped it. That, I believe, is a, a dress rehearsal for what's going to happen with the Jews. They're going to make it out, many of them, who listen to what has been preached. They will make it out. Pella is about 40 miles uh, northwest of, of Jerusalem. Uh, 50 miles, uh, sorry. Jesus says here in verse 23, See, I have told you all things beforehand. He says, so now you know. He's not finished. He's got more to say. But I want to close with three verses and one comment. Isaiah 44, 7. Yahweh speaking to the prophet Isaiah. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come. Let them show these things to them. So God is saying, I tell the future. Who else does that? He continues, Isaiah 48. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. Lest you should say, my idol has done them. My carved image and my molded image have commanded them. And so the prophet says, I'm getting this on paper. God is calling the future. And he's calling it so that you can't say, oh, this is just coincidence. Oh, my God did it. You who believe know the benefits of knowing end time prophecy in real time right now. And this is it. And don't back down from it. Don't listen to that Nostradamus nonsense. It's crazy. It can fit anything. I mean, there shall come a man with a size nine shoe and he shall walk down the street. Uh, yeah, well, how many guys have nine? I mean, just not. Anyway, they're just so general and flawed. Uh, don't, they don't have it. Finally, Second Peter chapter 1. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So they'll try to throw up in your face things like, well, the Bible was written by, by men. Well, it wasn't written by pachyderms. Even though they're big as elephants. Of course it was written by men. What do you want? Finger writing on the wall? They didn't believe that. It was too late, actually. When Moses had the tablets, they didn't believe that. Eventually, somebody stole them. You base it on truth. And so I've closed with these words. Every criticism of Jesus Christ is a revelation of the one who made the criticism. Every time somebody mocks the Lord... They're revealing, they're revealing something about themselves that is a malfunction from hell. Let's pray. Our Father, so much more to go. We are very excited that we have the, the God that knows the end from the beginning. Without conjecture, even though there are details that we're not clear on. Overall, we are very clear. The bottom line, we know the outcome. And we are so grateful for you. If you've been listening this morning and you have not opened your heart to Christ, you are in rebellion against him. This is his prophecy. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the title is critical. He is the Son of God, God the Son. He is equal with the Father. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And to be in opposition to him is not only unwise, but it will damn your soul, sentence you to a place from which you will not recover. You may have survived many things in this life, but you will not do well in the next one. But you can do something about that. All you have to do is turn to him. Open your heart to Christ. Stop living in denial. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments. And I ask you to forgive me. I come to you and you alone. There is no one else worthy enough to die in my place to take my punishment for me. And then to rise again. 
and deliver me from a sure, com- a sure coming judgment. I give my life to you right here, right now. And I ask that you would be not only the one who saves my soul from judgment, but also the one who rules over my life so long as I live. Now, Father, if anyone has made that prayer this morning, if anyone has embraced the meaning of that prayer this morning, may, Lord, they not be ashamed of their confession. May they understand that this leads to their salvation. These things we commit to your hands because ours aren't big enough. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have expressed that sentiment as I just modeled in that prayer, and you're serious, uh, we encourage you to come forward after church and speak to the pastors or call the church if you're online. But there is a urgent need for you to make your confession known at the beginning. Would you stand, please? As we head out this week, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And to that, the righteous would say, Amen.